0: Simple Beep, Episode 13: The History of iTunes from SoundJam to Version 3. Hi, welcome back to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormony
1: and I'm Brian Satorius.
0: And on this episode, we're going to begin a look at the history of iTunes. So this is a little bit new for us because iTunes is an application that is of course, still around today and many of us use on a daily basis. And we got to thinking about that in our last episode where we were talking about the apps and hardware that we use to listen to music with the classic Mac. And we got towards the end of the episode and asked each other, hey, how do you listen to music today? And we both said, well, we kind of hate it, but we still use iTunes. iTunes got its start,
1: which we'll get into um On the classic mac OS it launched in OS nine but yeah, it is kind of uncharacteristic for us, in that the majority of its lifespan and its current use today happens on OS ten, which is kind of out of the scope of our show, but it 's still worth looking at
0: and of course we 'll get into this, but iTunes was a little bit of a bridge and kind of an outlier on the classic Mac as well because well, it looked weird. It was only the second app that used the brushed metal appearance, which persisted for a long time and then sort of slowly merged into the look and feel of the modern OS X interface. So we actually wanted to provide a little bit of bigger context for this because we're thinking iTunes is still around, but it's one of the few iApps that we... still have because if if you opened up your applications folder, say, five years ago, probably half of it was going to start with the letter I and put together a list here of things like iChat, iDVD, iCount, iLife, iPhoto, iSync, all of these iApps that are basically no longer in existence. I currently have uh, iMovie, iBooks, and iTunes. So it's really down to just three of them. So iTunes is the one with some of the greatest longevity here, but we wanted to go back and make sure that we had that all right in terms of just how long it's lasted compared to some of these other apps that we use.
1: So let's take a look at the I prefix uh, as it ties into Apple's history. Obviously, today we have things like iPhones and iPads, but the first piece of hardware and really the first Apple product overall to carry the I prefix was the iMac, the computer that turned Apple around in 1998. Uh, Steve announced it at a special event in May, and it didn't start shipping until later that year. Um, and so there are lots of things about the iMac. It's its new design, it's uh, adoption of USB over ADB and other port standards.
0: And of course, it was the first major product release after Steve Jobs returned to the company.
1: And it was a product designed to help its its consumers, not even pro-level consumers, but mainstream consumers get on the internet quickly and easily. So the I and iMac stood for internet.
0: And that was what carried over into many of these other apps, although then it sort of gained a meaning of its own. One sort of joking thing that happened shortly after that uh, was when Steve Jobs took over the interim CEO role. And because of the huge success of the iMac around that same time, it was joked in the tech press that his title was actually iCEO.
1: And there's a clip of him at a Macworld event in 2000 when he's essentially saying he wants to be the CEO. He's no longer an interim CEO. He is the CEO. But he acknowledges that some people have made this iCEO joke And we'll put a link to this uh, short clip in the show notes. But when he makes this announcement, oh, man, the crowd goes nuts. So we have hardware with the iMac. Steve is the iCEO. What was the actual first piece of software with an iPrefix?
0: If you you had asked me, I would have guessed iTunes. I would have thought that iTunes is the king. It's going to be it was going to be the first one in and the last one out. I would
1: have, too. It turns out it was actually iMovie.
0: Right. So iMovie was the first of the iApps, and it was released alongside uh, the iMac DV, which was an update to the iMac line, which was really focused around, hence its name, it was focused around digital video and especially the DVD format. So some of the major features were it was the first Mac that would let you actually play a DVD movie on the screen, and then they said, well this is great. You can get some studio blockbuster movie that's been finally released on DVD and play it on your Mac screen. That's wonderful. Everybody wants that, but wouldn't it be better if you could play and make your own movies? And this was the genesis of iMovie. It was also, as they were more heavily adopting Firewire on their product lines, and uh, in the iMovie release, Steve Jobs Emphasizes the fact that at that point in time, Firewire had become the standard for digital video camcorders. And they go through all the features of iMovie, cutting together clips, transferring things from your home camcorder, all of that. And he puts an emphasis on the fact that this hardware and software is going to make your camcorder, which you thought was already a useful piece of technology, many times more useful.
1: So to get a sense of when this is all happening, it's the very late 90s and the early part of the year 2000. Uh, so think about how you were using your, your Mac or your home PC with uh, digital peripherals like cameras, or if you were on the internet, how you're getting there. These are all topics we've covered. Um, in January 2000, Apple uh, kind of overhauled its web presence and kind of doubled down on the internet. That's where I thought the, the next wave of computing was going. Um, so like the I and iMac standing for Internet, um, the Internet was where a lot of the, the, the new focus at Apple was going. So they're still working on it. They're still, yeah, they're still working on it. That's what I was going to say, too.
0: But interestingly, you know, we're talking about the names here. This service started out as iTools and then went through several other iterations, including .Mac and MobileMe. me. But now this service is, well, the successors of this service are around as iCloud. So they went back to an iName there for this heavily internet-focused service. Oh, one other internet-focused feature of iMovie that I had completely forgotten about was that apparently from 1.0 of iMovie, which was released alongside uh, or was released for Mac OS 8, was that... When you were done creating your movie, you couldn't only just play it on your own iMac DV that you had at home, but you could export it, and they would put it through some, I presume, extremely high compression. And then Apple actually hosted a video service, so you could export your movies instead of to YouTube, as you would today, to this Apple... Uh, hosted service, and they, there was a screenshot of it at one point. Apple skeuomorphism at its absolute best. You would load up uh, a link that you know your family member sent you. Hey, you know we went on vacation with the kids and we made an iMovie. You should watch it, and it would send you to this webpage that had like an old timey TV set,
1: like a very garish tube TV.
0: Yeah, one of the like really old classic TVs where the Picture tube wasn't even square. It was more rounded. And then sitting in the middle of that would be a plug-in frame for this QuickTime movie that they had exported, uploaded, and stored for you. So this was the whole conceit of of iMovie and these iApps, was to get stuff onto or through the internet.
1: In this press release that we're going to uh, link to in our show notes, in addition to providing... I don't know if it was called homepage or, or the, the kind of hosting uh, feature for your content, like movies, Apple released the, the rest of the iTools and uh, it includes iDisk, which today kind of exists as uh, the iCloud disk or iCloud storage. Yeah. iCloud drive. iCloud drive. That's right. Um, it includes the iCards service, which was uh, that early 2000s favorite of sending e-cards Uh, what was the what was the big player in that name was like blue mountain or digital mountain
0: oh i can't even remember but i found some of the apple icards websites in the Wayback machine and they were uh extolling the virtues of their 2000 u.s presidential election themed (laughs) icards that you could send to all your friends and family if you really wanted to annoy them i'm sure
1: uh but when we both looked at this press release, we saw something that we could not remember existing and really cannot imagine
0: existing. And it was a product called iReview. Well, it was a service slash website slash I'm not really sure what. Um, It was apparently announced also in January of 2000. And it was basically curated reviews by Apple employees of websites And web services. And there are things on there that said like, yeah, you should uh, go and shop at JCPenney's online store. It's brand new and it gets three stars out of five. Like I had, I had absolutely no recollection of this. Can you just imagine if Apple tried to do something like
1: this today? It's not even a walled garden, but people would be furious. Like Apple's trying to own the entire... Uh, browsing experience like
0: well, and think of just how much trouble they have now managing reviews in the app store, which of course is you know these were being written inside they were basically running a little mini review publishing house for this, it seems like, but when there was apparently supposed to be a user generated content portion, and you know we know how that goes on the app store I mean I guess they managed to keep out the you know, terrible spam and profanity laden type reviews in the app store. So they do at least a decent job on that. But otherwise, you know, it's all just one star and five star rants that don't actually match what the words say.
1: So so that's the state of the I prefix heavily leaning towards internet related things in January of 2000.
0: So our general chronology here is we started with the iMac. Steve jokingly adopted the iCEO title. Then we had iMovie as the first iApp followed by iTunes as the second iApp, which then later led to the iPod, the iPhone, the iPad, the iWatch. Wait, no, not the iWatch. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But this became a very useful part of their branding and eventually separated itself from the uh, internet-type term. And even iTunes was sort of the first step towards that because... There were some important internet-based features of iTunes, but of course, in the beginning, iTunes was not an internet-reliant app. And even today, iTunes is not a totally internet-reliant app. If you've got your music library on your computer, and you listen to it through iTunes, and you go on an airplane, and you open up your laptop and plug in headphones, your music plays. You know, if you have the local copies of the files. So... There is still a lot of this application that is not internet-based, and that's interesting how it sort of sent things on a different path for this whole suite of applications and Apple's products as a whole.
1: Right. It kind of started a trend of the i denoting a consumer-level product versus a pro-level product. Like, we had the iMac and the iBook for a while carving out the consumer side of things versus the, the Power Mac and the PowerBook. And of course, this is all being muddled now with the MacBook line and the MacBook Pro retina display. You know, everything's a little more mixed. I think iTunes, yeah, like Ed said, uh, broke away from it being just internet and more of of a very tied to Apple branding mechanism and also something that within Apple's product and service suite skewed more consumer friendly.
0: Let's actually get into how iTunes was introduced to the world. So, as we talked about a little bit last time, we talked about the beginnings of this story from the other side when we discussed the history of Audion, which was our favorite classic Mac MP3 player software from the fine folks at Panic. And they have a great history of how that product developed and how their main competition was SoundJam MP which was distributed by Cassidy and Green. And as we know now, uh, both of these companies were courted by Apple as Apple was looking to get into the music jukebox player space, which was really what they conceived of this at the time. That was this class of applications. And uh, interestingly, Steve Jobs even admits that in the keynote, where itunes was introduced that apple was sort of behind on this that there were other products out there that were serving this music library digital jukebox purpose from other companies and apple didn't have an offering and they needed to catch up and the way that they were able to catch up was by purchasing the rights to SoundJam and using much of its code base to get itunes off the ground um we have another link in the show notes here um, to – there are other people who have done iTunes retrospectives, but some of them are uh, a few years old now, as you can tell by their titles. One of them here is called The Complete iTunes History, Sound Jam MP to iTunes 9. So it's complete, except that it lacks iTunes 10, 11, and 12, <laughs> yeah. and 13, and whatever comes after in the, in the future. This, this article gives a good overview, and it also is um, – really snarky (laughs) yeah um it's got a it's got a fun fun voice it's a fun quick little read um it's posted on mac life and i guess that's the successor to mac addict right yeah yeah okay so i can uh, i could see this being in a mac addict piece the way that (laughs) it's written um and they lead it off by saying in 2000 a light bulb appeared over steve job's head ever the innovator, Apple's iCEO saw the peer-to-peer network as more than an illegal nuisance and began to develop a way to leverage the Napster revolution into the next killer Mac app. Which, I don't know if that was exactly what he was thinking. Um, I mean, certainly the illicit file trading that was happening in this time that we were all feeding into Audion, (laughs) that was getting people interested in using MP3s, then ripping their own MP3s, then purchasing hardware MP3 players. But it really seems like iTunes was a software play, that Apple recognized a critical piece of software that was missing in their first-party lineup.
1: Yeah, and a lot of people will talk today about how iTunes is a very bloated piece of software. It, it has to accomplish and manage so much more than just the uh, organization and playback of MP3 files and yeah i doubt that that all of the eventual things itunes would need to do was on their mind when they were considering this play but it's interesting that that it turned into a very very big software play for apple
0: absolutely and i think one of the things that's interesting going through and really focusing on what features shipped in itunes 1.0 made me think about this fact that We think of just one feature of iTunes is, oh, it manages all the music and lets you play it, right? (laughs) And that's its one primary feature. But that's really a whole class of really important features of which there are maybe a dozen of them, and that all these other pieces of software previously on the classic Mac and also on Windows were competing on these feature checklists that we now think of as one feature. And so it's interesting to dig into just exactly how complete of an app iTunes was at its launch compared to its predecessor, SoundJam, and the competition, Audion. But even before we get into that, I should mention, what really was considered like one feature then? So the introduction of iTunes was at the Macworld San Francisco Expo in January of 2001, and Remember, this is when there were multiple Macworld Expos around the country and around the world. Uh, we'll get to Macworld Expo Tokyo, which took place a month later in a little bit. And I had I never paid attention to Macworld Tokyo, um, but I knew that there was Macworld San Francisco and Macworld Boston um, and sometimes New York, but they, they did this switch between East and West Coast for their primary Expos. But this one was in San Francisco we're right in this transition period between the classic Mac and OS X. And there's a lot of things that Jobs is sort of promising features of OS X, comparing them to OS 9, saying what's going to bridge over. And one of the, the, the first thing that he demos in this keynote is the Power Mac G4 Tower, which is the most powerful Mac that they've ever released to this point. And one of the primary features that he's showing off is the fact that it comes standard with a CDRW drive and has option for the first super drive. And he's showing the new feature in macOS 9 where you can burn CDs, data CDs, as an OS-level feature instead of having to use third-party software like Toast. And so he puts in a blank CD, and it shows up as a CD icon on, on the desktop, And he opens it up. He says, it looks just like a folder. And then he has two things on the desktop and he drags them into the window and a little progress bar appears. And then the two icons appear in the window and the crowd goes berserk. (laughs) Like he almost gets a standing ovation just for dragging two items into a burn folder. He hasn't even hit burn yet. And they're like, oh my gosh, you have just blown our minds with the best feature ever. (laughs) (laughs) they don't even know what's coming up later in in the presentation so there were actually four things i think in this presentation they got the g4 tower itunes idvd and then the titanium power book right It's a lot. It's a lot. It was a full two hours, like half an hour on each of those. And iTunes is just chilling here in the middle. (laughs) Um, But, you know, this was a very excited crowd. This was a very interesting time um, where, you know, Steve Jobs was really taking the reins as full CEO again and getting out of and past the iReview and (laughs) iCards kind of level and getting people really pushed through into the OS X transition. But let's recall, iTunes was launched as a classic Mac app and ran on the classic Mac for several years. Steve breaks it down, though, even further than that. He goes into a little history lesson of his own and says that he's going to break down the eras of the PC. So he says that there have been three that they are launching the third golden age of the PC. He starts by saying that there's a prehistoric age, doesn't count as golden age, from 1976 to 79. Then he says through all of the 80s and into the mid-90s, 80 to 94 was the age of productivity. So this was where people were actually getting work done with their personal computers desktop computers in an office setting, that sort of thing. Software is coming into its own and being really productive.
1: As we learned from our triumph of the nerds, uh, watch through the, the, the first killer apps for many major platforms were spreadsheets. And so people were being productive with these computers in their homes and offices.
0: And the Mac in the early 90s was establishing itself as the leading platform for creative work like desktop publishing. Then after that came the age of the internet from 95 to 2000. So all of the breakthrough new applications. Yeah, the internet's over now. Yeah, It's done. I don't know where you've been the last 15 years, Brian. (laughs) There's been no internet. No one told me. But I mean, it's true that this was the age of the launch of the internet. I I think 95 is really a good date for that. I mean, I think if you said... Hey, Ed, when did the World Wide Web start? I think 93, 94. But 95 was the time that this was actually becoming a real successful proposition and not something that was just being kicked around as a new piece of hobby by, uh, you know, the real computer enthusiasts. And, you know, this is being pitched at the right time. Through 95 and 2000, we got things like you know, the launch of major internet browsers like Netscape and the Netscape IPO um, and the rise of Internet Explorer, all of these internet-based apps that were making people's lives easier and enabling them to do things on the internet that were not going through a command line, not going through BBS systems, not have, you know, it was the graphical web. And, of course, that was what Apple was interested in. But what This is all leading up to is the launch of the new age, the age of digital lifestyle, which was beginning in the year 2001. And to press upon people that they have started recently living a digital lifestyle, Steve goes through a bunch of slides of the devices that are composing your lifestyle, and he says... Cell phones, and he puts up, you know, like a picture of a candy bar Nokia cell phone. Portable music players, and he puts up a picture of basically your Discman, Brian. (laughs) And then he goes, and now they're getting even better, and he puts up a picture of literally a Diamond Rio. Yeah,
1: even the 600 one, like the, the exact model that I had.
0: And so he says, these are the devices that are contributing to your digital lifestyle, but you need a hub a digital hub for your digital lifestyle. And that, of course, is what the Mac is for. He ties this back to iMovie. You know, that camcorder is just one more thing, device in your digital lifestyle. Um, so what are they going to tackle now? Well, it is going to be your music lifestyle.
1: And so like like I said quickly about the camcorder, I think he says it, it multiplies the value of the camcorder you already have by 10 to integrate it into this digital hub with your Mac and software like iMovie.
0: And his point is fair. He says, you know, you go on vacation, you take a whole bunch of videos of the kids, you come back home, you pop out the tape because they were on those like... Mini, mini DVs or something? Yeah. Yeah. It was like digital, but still on tape. Um, you pop out the tape and you put it in a drawer and you say, yeah, I took lots of great movies.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you never watch them again.
0: Exactly. So he's saying, you know, if you even just get those onto your computer and watch them once or twice, you've drastically increased the value. If you're suddenly sharing them to all of your family across the country through the magic of the internet, you've really increased the value. And of course, like like hindsight, once again, this really came to fruition many years later, but this was a good first step.
1: Yeah. And Steve also puts up a slide that says, uh, classically, only Apple can do this because only Apple is the Apple is the only computer manufacturer out there that controls the whole stack. They're making their own hardware. They're making their own operating system. They're making their own applications and software to run on the operating system. And then like we recently uh, learned or rediscovered, they also have a pretty robust web presence. So they have hosting for the movies. You create in iMovie, for example, and then they have his final bullet point is marketing. They have a way for you to, to share it, a way for them to promote it. Um, and this is an argument we get, I think, time and time again, like the iPhone is successful because Apple's controlling the whole stack. They make the hardware, they make the software. That's how they can get these tight integrations with really good, uh, camera results and really good battery life. So this has been something that they've been able to take advantage of time and time again.
0: And I really thought that this was like a pundit perspective, that this was something that had cropped up recently, sort of in Apple's dominant era, especially since the release of the iPhone, people say, well, the reason that they can do this, as you have seen time and time again, now with the most recent example being X, that the reason they can do it is because they control the whole stack. But it's really interesting to see Steve Jobs get up on stage and not just say this, not just like mention it in passing. He's got a slide. And it's like, we add this and this and this and this it's in the chalkboard font, which is what he used in all of these early, I guess, pre keynote presentations. I wonder what they were actually made in. Um, but you know, it has that, uh, same gradient background. That's like the default in keynote to this day. Uh, and, but the font is chalkboard and <laughs> it's atrocious. It, oh, it looks awful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and Gil Sands never looked so good. <laughs> yeah. um, but he's got it, you know, add these things together. This is the Apple experience that only we can deliver. Then he goes into, okay, now we're going to deliver this same experience for music. What does this mean? He takes us through, without really using the words, he takes us through rip, mix, Burn. So that ad campaign didn't come a li- until a little bit later in the iTunes product cycle, but he actually gets up there and explains all the steps of what this means. And he's like, okay, people in the audience older than 30, this is what I mean. (laughs) He's like, I know you're technical. I I know you understand how a DVD burner works or CD burner works. But bear with me here. This is what the kids are doing today. They're taking their CDs. They're reading the data. They're encoding it as MP3s. They're putting together playlists. And he says... This is like the whole goal that people have been asking for. He says, what do you want to do with your music? You don't want it trapped on a CD. You use your computer all day, so you want to...
1: I have it playing in the background as you're using it. And and in just the songs you want to hear, maybe he says, like three from this album, four from that album.
0: Well, Brian, you made that exact same point last episode. You're like, well, you know, you go to the record store and you buy a $20 album and... There's maybe two tracks on there that you actually like. He says all of these same things. Like, this was, this was in the collective conscience at the time.
1: I was one of those under-30 youths that he was talking about.
0: I was <laughs> youngins. And then he says, of course, now we've released these awesome new G4 towers, and you can burn these things to your heart's content and take them back in the car or whatever you want to do with them. Then he says, okay, so you want to do all this stuff on your Mac. What can you use? Well, you can use the lousy competition classic apple keynote move and he goes through and says uh well you could use real player and he shows off real player and he makes a jab at the fact that it's got advertising in it he says well microsoft has a solution windows media player which was not at all on the mac at that time but he was just pointing it out as a generally competing product and he says or you could use something like music match which was another jukebox app.
1: And I think the screenshot he even shows is an HP branded version of Music Match. That Right, it's an
0: OEM, and it's got a big HP logo on it. It is not brushed metal, it's just...
1: Like blue chrome?
0: Yeah, blue chrome, exactly. So he says, okay, you don't want any of these. You want our solution. Well, we're going to change all this today with something we call iTunes. And he cuts to the next slide, which is demonstrating this software that's being released. It's a picture of a CD with big studio headphones on the label that are sort of stretched out so they curve around the hole in the middle. And in big Apple Garamond at the bottom, it says iTunes.
1: It's funny to think of iTunes needing to be uh, installed off of a CD. It was an option from the beginning, but... uh... Most people probably downloaded it, even from 1.0.
0: Right. And they said, or you can go on Apple.com and download it. And I went back and revisited this, and I remember now that this was kind of an ordeal. You didn't just go and download it. You had to fill out basically a contact information form, and then they would give you the link.
1: Yeah, I remember all that.
0: And... I have no idea what they used that for unless they felt that that was really the only way that they could track accurately the number of downloads. Um, But yeah, as you said, Brian, most people downloaded it. I'm sure that I downloaded it the first time that I used it. Um, But the CDs are still out there, but apparently they're somewhat rare now because there must not have been too many of them produced. And they probably were selling them. I would guess. Um, I was looking at some of the other music application products at this time, and what seemed like a common model was to say, we have our base price of, say, $40 for SoundJam if you download it, or we'll send it to you on a disc for 50 So this was probably, you know, you could buy it for, I don't know, maybe 10 bucks or something.
1: One more word on pricing. Uh, something that Steve hits pretty hard uh, while he's going through the competition is that he's like... Um, a lot of these are available for free in quotes, but they'll uh, put artificial caps on like how quickly you can burn CDs back or how quickly the MP3 encoder will run, things like that.
0: Or just total number of encodes at all. You get you get 25 demo encodes.
1: Yeah, I think Sound Jam pursued that model. And then the $30 slash $40 price came in to uh, remove those limits, basically.
0: Well, he doesn't come out and use the word, but he's basically calling them crippleware. Oh, yeah. It says these are useless unless you pay them a large sum of money. And how do you blow that out of the water? You charge no money. Uh, Something that they've continued doing to this day. I mean, this is probably one of their first really huge free pieces of software. And
1: we're we're all used to iTunes being free. Like, I imagine anyone who's bought a Mac, gone to college in the last decade, just assumes that iTunes is there for free. Uh, And we're kind of going out of order in the keynote um, because he saves the big free announcement for last. But people's like genuine surprise and elation at the fact that iTunes is free software was really startling to me because even if I didn't know iTunes specifically, just seeing a new software announcement in this day and age that's not like very niche or for a certain area of professionals... I would assume it to be free because that's just where we're heading or like 99 cents or something. But people were very excited that iTunes was free with no limits.
0: Right. And because the, the juggernaut of Apple has been able to come through and use its cash reserves to make so many of its products free or very low cost. I think now, at least in certain circles, especially the, the, Mac nerd circles that are in tune with the independent development community, anytime that Apple makes an announcement now and they go, and we drastically slashed the price, or and now it's free, the reaction is more like concerned groans from the people whose livelihoods may be affected by that because they were still operating in that market, being able to charge, and Apple says, we're going to put out something just as good as any of the competition but guess what? It's free.
1: So back to this keynote. Uh, Steve has announced that it's iTunes. He's shown the the image of the product CD.
0: Now we get to actually see it.
1: Yeah, the interface. Oh, this interface. <laughs>
0: the first thing that he shows um, are some static screenshots of the brushed metal interface. So it makes a lot of sense, internally consistent logic sense, that iTunes is brushed metal. So iTunes is only the second app, really, maybe second and a half app from Apple that uses the prototypical brushed metal interface. So iMovie had a little bit of brushed metal-like elements in it, but those brushed metal elements were more tied to, actually, unsurprisingly, Final Cut which was a recent acquisition from Macromedia. And the controls in iMovie 1.0 were these, oh my goodness, they're like neon teal on black. I had forgotten about this. And then there's sort of brushed metal around it. Whereas the only app that was pure brushed metal to this point was the QuickTime Player, which got redesigned shortly before that with the release of QuickTime 4. Before that, in QuickTime 2, 2 2.5, 3, the QuickTime player window was just like any other window, had the same standard window border, either the border from the classic sort of System 6, System 7 look, or the Apple Platinum look of OS 8 and OS 9, and just very simple controls that fit within that window. Then, with the release of QuickTime 4, they went all brush metal. This is sort of the first skeuomorphic design from apple because do you remember this the uh the volume control was a little knob on the side
1: yeah like on a physical disc man or something that you had
0: to drag up and down which Mm -hmm. was nearly impossible it was definitely the uh first example of the form and function not lining up really going for the you know the aesthetic first um But it totally made sense that iTunes, the next big media-playing application from Apple, is going to match their media-playing software platform, which is QuickTime.
1: Let alone the QuickTime being the underlying technology for iTunes as well.
0: A portion of the underlying technology, and of course the other portion is the code from SoundJam. And if you look back at SoundJam, its default theme was... Maybe coincidentally, maybe inspired by QuickTime, brushed metal. Of course, it had the whole skin library, the infamous jelly skin that was all purple and blobby. <laughs> um, and then uh, the automatic conversion of Audion skins, faces to skins later on. So Sound Jam didn't have a fixed appearance, but its default was brushed metal. That also sort of carried over into the iTunes look. Of course... The addition to the brush metal, I guess this was sort of similar in the QuickTime controls. Was you had this material, you know, the window was for the first time supposed to look like a material, and then some of the controls were also supposed to look like a material. They were supposed to look like an a real world LCD display, like you might find on, say, your disc man that just says, you know, track one one minute and 33 seconds or something. And
1: um, I'll I'll get to this now. Uh, I think I remember, and some of the screenshots look this way, that the first release of iTunes, even though it was targeted at OS 9, had little tiny elements of the forthcoming Aqua interface. Like the, um, the scroll bar was that blue Aqua bubble and the column headings were in Aqua blue and translucent. And the thing that I... I'm 99% sure, (laughs) um, uh, was included in iTunes was the first instance of the system Lucida Grand font,
0: right? Because it was used in the library listing, which eventually became the model for really how the finder looked, um, right down to, gosh, I forget which version it was in where they added the, the, the. Stripey alternating rows of that iTunes library look to list view in the finder, which I thought was going to drive me crazy to the end of time. But of course, like all of this, we get used to it. So I
1: remember around the introduction of iTunes, I was still a steadfast supporter of Audion. I downloaded it mostly to see what Apple's like future interface paradigms were going to look like on my, at the time, OS nine Mac and actually went back to Audion until I had a computer that would only boot OS 10.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about when I actually made the switch from Audion. And we'll get to this in a little bit. When I was just looking to manage my music and just play it on my Mac, I stuck with Audion. And Audion ran on OS 10. And I don't know whether I ever installed it on OS 10, but I know the thing that pushed me to iTunes was the iPod because the only way that you were going to get music onto your iPod, like I said, we'll get to this, is through iTunes. So there was that link there. Um, but iTunes, just as the music player, didn't sell me from version one. Right. Same here. Despite the fact that it had a whole host of features. Now, many of these were also present in Audion at the same time, were present in Sound Jam. And if you look back at say, the SoundJam documentation, they actually sort of removed some of the features of SoundJam to create iTunes. It was a simplification. And that was part of the pitch as well, was that those other jukebox apps, in addition to the restrictions and being ugly, were overly complicated, and people didn't know how to use them. So they were looking for the core features Get music in, identify it, make playlists, listen, maybe burn a CD. So Steve demos this by saying, you know, what's the first thing you need to do is you need to identify the tracks that are on a CD. So he shows that iTunes has CDDB integration. I guess it was Grace Note at the time, which meant that you could just pop in CD. If you were connected to the internet, it would go up to the internet and retrieve the track names, which for those of us who painstakingly typed track names into the Apple CD audio player, this was, you know, getting to be like magic, that you didn't actually have to replicate all this information.
1: Uh, so the CD he puts in is uh, it's the B-52s, and he just wants to get Love Shack off of the CD.
0: Well, because if he was going to rip the whole CD, it was going to take forever and a day. There are some times in this demo that still feel just incredibly slow. But you can tell that the audience has a patience for it. Because, you know, like we said, they were thrilled at that just uh, Finder CD burning demo at the top. And he didn't even burn the CD. He says, okay, I'm going to drag it to the Trash and Council now. <laughs> but so he says, I'm going to rip Love Shack. And he actually does it. And it's using the new G4 Tower, which at its max is going to be able to uh, rip and encode this mp3 at, he says, about 8x. So we sit there for one-eighth of the duration of Love Shack (laughs) in complete silence. He also then shows importing mp3s that you already have because he assumes that many people in a tech-savvy audience are going to have already begun this process. So he takes a folder. He's preloaded, I think, like, he's put like 1,000 mp3s into just a single folder in the Finder on the desktop and drags it in. And iTunes does a good job of just importing it very quickly. Um, but it was interesting that this is sort of the first time this notion of collecting all your music in one library really comes around is because he says, he acknowledges, he's like, you've got a bunch of CDs in a stack, you know, those CD stack shelves. yeah, And you've got Probably a bunch of MP3s sitting somewhere in folders on your hard drive. And there is no universal place where all of this lives. And like
1: we were talking about um, in our previous episode about how we organize our files, since we like to keep our files, uh, like Ed knows how his file system works for managing MP3s. And for a while I did too, except it was basically one loose folder and one designated for transfer to the MP3 player. Um, And so this was kind of the beginning of what we see now in iOS where the file system, at least for your music files, can pretty much be abstracted away. You can browse, sort, and organize through the iTunes window interface.
0: Exactly. And it is this one window interface. And, of course, these kind of interfaces were being experimented with by Apple at the time. Remember that this is right in the OS 9 to OS 10 transition, And there was, of course, the ill-fated single-window mode in one of the developer previews of OS X where I said, what, you don't need more than one finder window ever. Just put the finder into into full-screen mode and it'll be fine. Um, Just use column browser, and if you need to drag something from here to there, um, go up the tree, down the tree. (laughs) Um, They had a revolt on their hands for that. But iTunes is very much in the same vein. You've got the library uh, in the main part of the window, you have the source list on the left. Um, not sure if it was officially called that at the time. He points it out as being the place that you create and access playlists. And then uh, later on in the demo, he shows off a feature of iTunes that is still there. Um, the source list is not so much still there. It's kind of hidden. You have to get it to come out <laughs> in modern versions of iTunes. Um But another feature, which is still there, which is the column browser, where you can show at the top separate columns for things like artist, album, genre. Other things, too, I think you can sort of modify what appears there and how many columns appear there and how you want to quickly slice and dice your music to find what you're looking for. He also shows that, yes, you can do this. You can filter your library basically in real time. And this is also a pretty crowd-pleasing feature. Because like I said, most of us at this point, were used to having maybe an organized folder of MP3s, but more likely than not just a junk drawer full of MP3s. So yeah, you can sort by all the, the same things we were talking about
1: and additional things like maybe time, the duration of the song, when it was added, the genre album, if you want to. Um, and then there's a third way and it's uh, the search bar, which also still exists at the top.
0: Which has a giant bezel
1: around it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very inset into the brushed metal.
0: There's been some talk recently with the Yosemite redesign about whether that little animation that shows up when you click in a search field is a bit too much. Mm-hmm. But this, just the whole field itself, is it's crying out to you. Yeah, <laughs> I think the bezel is about as big as the, f- the area you type in itself.
1: <laughs> what uh, pleases the crowd and would have like wowed me if I had seen this, uh, in real time back in 2001 is that as you type in the search bar, which obviously is still the behavior today, it filters the results live. You don't have to hit return and wait for results to come in. It's doing this all live. So like, as you type further, I think he's looking for Dylan Thomas and he starts by typing Dylan. So he gets Bob Dylan and Dylan Thomas. And as soon as he hits space T, all of the Bob Dylan songs go away. Um, it's really impressive.
0: And it was a feature that we were not accustomed to at the time. Internet searches did not work this way. Other applications' search features did not work this way at the time. You made your query hit enter and got your results. And if, especially if you were dealing with the internet, if those results came back to you in a matter of a handful of seconds, you were pleased with the speed. So live filtering was really a great feature here. Now, I'm, I'm not going to say that no other applications at the time had that i'm betting that some of those competing jukebox applications had similar features maybe something like winamp or something like that
1: it's classic apple right they show up late to the party but they do everything uh it looks good and it just works
0: well there were a couple things though that didn't quite just work steve tries to do a demo of uh actually burning a cd with a few tracks on it and he really struggles he puts it in and itunes doesn't recognize it he goes oh maybe that's a bum disc and then he puts in another one and um you remember how the li- little like burn icon would it was like under a fake metal iris yeah like it was pr- protecting you from it <laughs> like it was radioactive cuz it had that sort of like like
1: fallout shelter
0: fallout logo. shelter kind of pattern on it but the button was not always sort of active when you thought it was. And he was trying to do the demo quickly and he like turned it off, clicked it when he wasn't supposed to, then clicked it again and it like deactivated it and he couldn't get it to, and he just, eventually he just gives up on burning the CD, but nobody cares anyway. They know that you can burn data CDs in the Finder. They presume that this works.
1: Yeah, I think he, he like starts a successful burn um, and it, he says something like, well, I don't want to do the whole thing. And he cancels it.
0: Right. Cause he had put like an entire hour of music in this playlist that he was then going to burn, which if we sat through, it was going to take another half hour. <laughs> but when he, when he cancels it,
1: I cringe because I still remember the pain of, of getting a bum disc out of oh. burning it, especially with DVDs, which thankfully he didn't, you know, he, that was a different part of the keynote.
0: Right. Cause that's a coaster now.
1: Yeah. It's a coaster. It's a, it's a dead piece of plastic. And he just so casually is like, "Well, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ruin this."
0: Well, he talked. To, he was saying that at that time the price of that media was coming down. They were about twenty five cents a piece. He said,
1: "Super cheap." Uh, so this what yeah, this was a big feature of iTunes. It's the third part of the rip, mix, burn. Um, and so he points out that uh, in iTunes 1.0, um, the burning is only going to be compatible with the first party CD burning hardware in the just announced G4 towers, and uh, they'll be working to add drivers for other popular third-party drives uh, in the near future.
0: In the near future turned out to be very near future, just <laughs> just about a month later. Um, but I was thinking about this, you know, in the whole rip, mix burn paradigm. So we were saying before that we conceive of one of the features of iTunes as manage and play the music. And we're here, we're digging down into these multiple features that were really important to have a full-fledged application of this sort at the time. But a lot of those features were getting music off of CDs and getting them back onto CDs, which I guess, you know, those features still live in iTunes. They're still there. They have not gone entirely. If you have an optical drive, you can still do all of these things with iTunes even today. But they're so not the focus of a digital music lifestyle today that they've really just been pushed aside And so maybe that's why it's easy for us to think of just play the darn music as a feature. Whereas in 2001, there were so many prerequisites to just play the darn music. And if you wanted to play the music somewhere else, it wasn't just, oh, well, it's in iTunes, so that means it's magically in my pocket. If you had music in iTunes and you wanted to play it in your car, you wanted to play it on your commute. You wanted to play it during your workout. You had steps to take to get there. And those were the features that were built in that made this a full-fledged product.
1: Uh, We mentioned getting music off of the computer and back into another place you want to listen. And yeah, I bet at this point in digital music, it was by far... Uh, burning onto blank CDs.
0: And then playing them in real time to get them onto your mini display. Oh, right.
1: right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but from 1.0 of iTunes, it did have support for some uh, other companies, USB-based MP3 players, maybe like a Creative Nomad or the Diamond Rio.
0: Right. And they just showed up in the source list and you drag, did drag and drop and Steve shows that you could even delete files right off of those devices natively because they were—they basically were just USB drives.
1: There's also the internet radio stations. Which here's the are, I in iTunes. Here's the I. And uh, I had to check myself for a couple seconds because I was just expecting it to be kind of a streaming service like we have today that, uh, you know, like a Pandora or a Spotify. Obviously, that was not the case. These were you know, kind of like broadcast radio stations coming over uh, the internet. It was a stream you had to tune into.
0: Right. And so it's a live stream where you say, connect me to this live MP3 stream and I get what I get. And many of them were from actual terrestrial radio stations. Many of them were extremely poor quality. Yes. Because that was all that they could manage or afford to upstream. It wasn't the downstream bandwidth restrictions so much. I mean especially once I went off to college then and had great ethernet connection in in the dorm. That was when I started listening to using this feature of iTunes, the radio source in the source list. And you would go in and they were categorized as it's shown, you know, they're like top 40 and alternative and this and that. And most of them were these terrestrial radio stations. I think there was one from, I think it was Virgin radio from the United Kingdom that like I listened to in college because when I was like up late studying at night, they would play their morning program because they were five hours ahead of us. So when it's like one in the morning, they would be doing their morning program and it made me feel more awake (laughs) to listen to that as my music late at night Because I had this, like, they were talking about, like, getting up and getting ready for the day. There was lots of stuff in there. Many of them were these radio streams. But then also, once people had the technology, you know, I guess some of the underlying technologies here are, like, Shoutcast and Icecast, which I don't really know a whole lot about. But the really underlying technology is basically just MP3 streaming, which is possible over, well, over those protocols or then later over HTTP you were just sort of at the mercy of what was in this catalog that was curated by Apple, but there was a lot of stuff in there. And then later on, there was a lot of internet generated content that went in there where people would set up music loops or do even live broadcasts of, you know, talk and stuff like we're doing now. It was more the live internet radio revolution, but that was hard to do if you didn't want it just as background, uh, it was sort of a hard sell to get someone on the other side of the planet to tune in to listen to your radio stream. Podcasting has that great benefit that you can time shift it.
1: I didn't know that you uh, actually used this feature. I, uh, To be honest, I didn't know that anyone regularly used the the internet radio in this form.
0: There were a couple years there. Uh, I would say it was mostly when I was in college that I, I used this. And it was for... You know, you would find a station that played mostly songs that you liked and just sort of put it on as background. It's, it's basically the same function that I use something like Pandora for today, except it was less catered to me, and there was no option to pay a few bucks and get rid of all the ads. <laughs> right. Um, unless you found one of those sort of, you know, almost kind of like pirate radio. Not that the content itself was pirated, although maybe some of it was, um, but there were sort of these super underground indie radio stuff that, um, you could also add those as then, you know, like a direct URL into, um, into iTunes. Unfortunately though, you couldn't add things into the radio portion. I think that's still true to this day. So if you had something that was a separate stream and you added it, it would go into your library.
1: Yeah. You couldn't save it as like a favorite channel in the internet. Section.
0: No, and it will say time continuous. <laughs> yeah, that's in right. In the little time column, and it sorts in with all your other stuff. And every time you play that feed for even a second, it increments the play count. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, and that feature is still there. If you go digging for it, you'll still find it there in iTunes 12. It's now called Internet Radio to differentiate it from iTunes Radio, the modern feature.
1: Uh, Steve continued through his tour of iTunes and its features. And the next thing he went through was the mini-player interface. And uh, I forgot that it it kind of came in two sizes, one that still maintained the status display of showing what was playing and the time elapsed or time remaining. And then you could further minimize it by dragging the the zoom widget to just the basic, like, pause, play, forward, backward, and volume.
0: Yeah, so it could go really minimal. And again, with that goal of being... Yes, your background music while you worked on your Mac.
1: I, so that's a, that was the point that struck me is that um, I haven't used that mode in a very long time because I'm usually on a laptop, uh, a 13 inch laptop, and I've gotten into command tabbing with, you know, like most of my windows maximized or, you know, organized in spaces so that if I ever want to look at what's playing in iTunes, I can command tab and just glance at it and command tab back out. And now, especially um, with laptops and, I guess, all modern keyboards, uh, there's a row of function keys dedicated to media and music playback with the same controls as the the ultra-minimized widget. You have pause, play, forward, backward, and volume controls.
0: Right. And those weren't there at the time, because why would they be? Controlling playback of media is not an OS-level feature in 2001 and didn't even become an OS-level feature with just the release of iTunes. It was only once iTunes became then shortly thereafter bundled with OS 10. So it was actually installed on every Mac as opposed to a free download that you had to go and find yourself. And then not just that, but actually used to the level where it merited dedicated function keys on the keyboard.
1: And uh, when I saw the, the ultra minimized, View of iTunes. Um, it rem- reminded me of some of the Audion skins I got, where like how m- how much functionality can I cram into the littlest space possible so I can leave it floating while I you know try to play a game or browse the internet. So that was that was kind of cool.
0: Yeah. So that takes us through the functional features of iTunes, and of course, there's one frivolous feature. It's introduced as a brand new invention. Here are the words that. Steve says in the keynote. What if we could see music? What would it look like? But the fact of the matter is that many of us who had been playing music on our Macs had been seeing our music for a long time. Maybe in more simplified ways. I remember sort of basic visualizers that just showed sort of the EQ bars going up and down in real time. Something like you would see in Overcast on iOS now, where it just has that sort of pleasing visualized animation, but nothing over the top. But Apple was not going to go small on this feature. Um, And they have their own built-in visualizer that Steve Jobs loves so much. I think he shows it for almost two minutes in the Keynote. But it really was leveraging a lot of their new technology, uh, probably including beginnings of quartz technology at this point. Um, maybe this was still quick draw, I don't know, um, but really leveraging the graphical capabilities as well as the audio capabilities of the new hardware and I think this really was designed to be a fun and B as a demo of how powerful their new hardware was.
1: Yeah. I think at this point with the, the G4 towers are out, the IMAX are uh, DV. So they've been revved a couple of times. Uh, and later in the keynote, he announces the PowerBook G4. Maybe everything had a discrete like ATI uh, graphics card in them. So that, you know, like everything currently selling at that point did have the power to kick out some pretty cool visuals.
0: Yeah, and even then it would stutter sometimes, but uh, I think still to this day, you can uh, pop on an overlay that shows you how many frames per second you're getting on your iTunes visualizer if you ever turn it on anymore. I haven't even accidentally turned it on recently, and it's usually fairly easy to do because I think it's still Command-T, which, you know, Command-T is used for so many other things. New tab oh, I was accidentally still had iTunes in focus and wanted to create a new Chrome tab. And oh, suddenly it's playing giant visualizers at me.
1: I just did it right now. It is Command-T. And obviously I have nothing playing, so it just looks goofy.
0: Oh yeah, that was the thing. You could still pause the music while the visualizer was up and it would show sort of the like flat version of it with no fluctuation in the wave. Well, not the waveform, those EQ bands that it uses to compute the appearance. And I think now, today, the default visualizer is different than it was then. Then it was sort of this, like, flying through this space scape. Um, It always started off in orange. It looked like it was on fire. And then you were going through tunnels and canyons. And it also always showed a big Apple logo right at the beginning.
1: Right. And when a track changed, the track information would be at the lower left, like uh, an MTV music video.
0: Yeah, this was supposed to be part of your entertainment experience, I guess.
1: I definitely went to many college college parties uh where someone's computer would be hooked up to like a pair of desktop speakers and uh they would leave their iTunes visualizer on full screen.
0: Yeah, well it was it was like the, you know, it was like a lava lamp in the corner. Yeah, it that's exactly what it,
1: it wasn't supposed to be like a focal point, but if you you had to have the computer on and you didn't want it to be like your desktop, so they just would kick on the visualizer.
0: Yeah, so that wraps up the features of iTunes version 1.0. So it was a pretty huge undertaking. And so with that, it's left and they give the final tagline for what it is. Join the music revolution with iTunes and make your music devices about 10 times more valuable. So Jobs then takes the uh, remaining 30 minutes of the keynote to introduce iDVD. And they're really demonstrated, like, on a par, that these are apps of sort of equal importance. But we now know that iTunes has evolved, maybe not exactly in the ways that we want, but the notion of playing music, that central feature, is still around, whereas the notion of creating DVDs and physical media is not around in 2015, and coincidentally, neither is iDVD as software. Um... But then he wraps up the the presentation. I think we've been mixing up two keynotes so far. In this one, we only have the three products. Um, So the G4 Tower, iTunes, and iDVD. So Steve Jobs says, what have we showed you? These three products, including... iMusic available today. Oh, not iTunes. Freudian slip. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I had no idea. This totally blew my mind when I was watching this. He accidentally calls it iMusic in the very introduction of it. And I think this is interesting because we've been asking recently, are they just going to rename the thing? And are they going to finally just call it music.app? Of course, the hope there being that you would have to take out all of the other features because it would be ridiculous to have some of those things included in an app that's just called Music. But it's been the trend for all of these other iApps, where you know iCal became Calendar, iChat became Messages, iMovie still hanging around, iPhoto, just within the past few weeks as we record this, has become Photos. So the question is, how much longer can iTunes stay around Especially as this i brand is uh, fading, at least in the app space. You know, it's it's a marker of Apple hardware still, even though, of course, the iPod is on its way out. But the iPhone is as strong as ever. The iPad is still an important platform. It's still a piece of their brand identity. But the question is, how much longer will we have iTunes as music playing software? probably for a long time. With that name, who knows? We should also mention um, things that have changed over the era of iTunes is the visual language of its icon.
1: Yes. Yeah. This is one of my favorite little sagas. Uh, iTunes 1.0 was released, even though it was released for OS 9, I bet they had prepared the full giant OS 10 photorealistic icon that's um, a compact disc, a CD, and eighth notes on top of it. This general illustration uh, is basically still with iTunes today, even though it's not a CD. It's just a, a, a plain circle. We've never lost the notes, which makes sense. It's a music playing software.
0: And it's, and it's a universal symbol of mm-hmm. music.
1: So this first one, this first one is a, a CD. It's in the kind of photorealistic old OS X style. Um, and there are three kind of aqua e bubbly, separate eighth notes in various shades of pink and purple resting on the CD. That's the first iTunes icon.
0: All right. So that wraps up iTunes 1.0. We're going to take a quick little break here and then get through a couple more versions of iTunes, some significant things that got added later on. But before we do that, we want to tell you about a product that you would have liked. So today's episode of Simple Beep is not brought to you by Conflict Catcher 8 by Cassidy and Green. So Conflict Catcher 8 is great. It's a well-acclaimed product because it is the winner of the 1998 Macworld Eddie Award. So don't just take it from me. Take it from Jason Snell, who writes, Cassidy and Green's Conflict Catcher is the essential troubleshooting tool for Macintosh users. The latest version of the popular extension management utility offers improved testing for software conflicts, support for macOS 8's contextual menus, more file descriptions, and the ability to be controlled by Apple's location manager. Most impressive of all is Conflict Catcher's clean install system merge function, which lets you easily move old system files you still want into a newly installed system folder. Truly impressive stuff, and will definitely help clear up those extension conflicts in just five or six restarts. (laughs) These are distributors of wonderful software like Sound Jam MP. And you can get Conflict Catcher 8 in 1998 by... Uh, you can contact them by phone or their website, CassidyG.com. Do not go to their website now. It's a park domain and you will give money to bad people. But in 1998, you should have given Cassidy and Green $80. Low, low price of $80 for Conflict Catcher 8. Macworld Eddie Award-winning software. Thank you to Cassidy and Green and Conflict Catcher for not sponsoring this episode of Simple Beep. (laughs) So, we have iTunes, 1.0. Let's zoom into the future, 44 days later.
1: Yes. So, it was uh, announced at Macworld San Francisco in January 2001. There was another Macworld, Macworld Tokyo, in just one month later, February 2001. And uh, Steve basically goes through the same long keynote presentation,
0: and we'll have links to both of these keynotes in the show notes, the YouTube videos, full videos of them, and they're both like two-hour keynotes, and they are really almost mirror images of each other. Um, one slightly annoying thing about these videos, um, the the times that we live in, um, is that uh, there are all these demos of iTunes, and he actually plays music to show that, you know, it's a music player, it plays music, and they've had to cut it out. They've they've had to duck the audio in those parts of the videos so that YouTube doesn't catch them for being copyright violations and automatically take them down, which is ridiculous because it's, you know, 20 seconds of audio in a two-hour-long video.
1: So about halfway into Macworld Tokyo, we get to the same part about iTunes, and like a, like a traditional Apple keynote, since this is a product that has been out in the wild, it actually starts with an update on the numbers. iTunes got uh, 750,000 downloads in its first month, which is pretty impressive.
0: I mean, that's a great launch for any software product, then or now. Let's, not, let's be completely honest there.
1: Uh, and Steve goes through a lot of the same demos um, and then announces iTunes 1.1
0: you get the feeling that they wanted to ship this as the 1.0, but that they really wanted to drop it at Macworld San Francisco. So the big new feature is that it has support for all of those third-party CD burners. So the rip mix burn strategy is finally viable, even if you don't have one of their brand-new towers. So, <laughs> yeah, Ripmix burn in iTunes 1.0, the day that it launched even though the software was free, it was basically like a $2,000 feature. (laughs) Um, But now it works on the hardware that most people already have.
1: This was also the first version of iTunes to be bundled with OS X. The first version actually released on OS X. And I think that that ties into what Ed just said. It was probably the first version that felt feature complete to them. All right, that's iTunes 1.1. Let's zoom forward now an appropriate amount of time to the next big iTunes release which is iTunes 2. And this was released alongside that device we all know and love for playing music, the iPod, in October 2001.
0: Right. So we're not going to dive into the keynote for this too much because it really is the iPod introduction keynote. And there's so much more here that's focused on the iPod as a piece of hardware. But again, going with the whole theme of making this digital lifestyle and the music portion of the digital lifestyle easy to use and a top-to-bottom full-stack experience.
1: So one of the features that came out in iTunes 2 was the addition of an equalizer. So if you wanted to tweak, uh, you know, something bass-heavy for that type of music or treble-heavy or more balanced sound, you could now do that right within the software, right within iTunes. And I have a little note here that... um, I obviously did not come across this link at the time, um, many years later, but uh, Merlin Mann, uh, a prolific podcaster, uh, internet personality, posted something on his old site, 43 Folders, for what he called the perfect iTunes equalizer setting. And whenever I found it, I uh, added it as one of my presets, and I use it to this day. And it really does give a nice little boost in all the right places for all the types of music I listen to.
0: He says, it seems to give a nice pop to MP3 tracks in particular. So probably smoothing over the rough edges in your garbage MP3s, in other words. Yep. Yeah. Um, I almost never used the equalizer for anything. And then I got the impression that, you know, especially working on a laptop later on was that the equalizer was a little bit CPU heavy.
1: Yeah. A little bit of battery hog.
0: So if you really wanted to listen to your music library on the go, which when I was first using iTunes heavily, which was in college, yeah, if I had my computer around campus with me, I would want to listen to music, but I also didn't want it to take my battery life from three or four hours down to two or three just to get that extra little pop. Fair point. There were some other features that were introduced here that were this was again in the like making your music sound better sort of vein. So alongside the equalizer, they also had a crossfader feature that you could turn on in preferences. Another feature that I almost never found useful um, because it I like to hear the entire song. <laughs> yeah. Usually, and even you know when they fade out a song before it's over on the radio, because at this point I was also listening still to a good bit of terrestrial radio actually over the air, in addition to those iTunes stations. When the DJ fades out the end of the song before it's really over, it's like, I I was listening to that.
1: Yeah, it's very frustrating.
0: (laughs) Um, And of course, the way the iTunes crossfader works is then, it's a crossfader, so the next one comes up. Um, And if you're listening to songs on shuffle, this can be very jarring, because you could get two totally different songs basically playing at the same time. So... I don't know, I guess this is maybe a useful feature for DJs, um, but I don't think that iTunes 2 was nearly full-fledged enough to be sort of a full DJ setup. I mean, a couple years ago, uh, when I was in grad school, I would notice a lot of times that I would be out at the bar and we would play trivia, and then after trivia, DJ would come in for the rest of the night. And, you know, it would be some, some college student Bringing in this giant pelican case, like, you know, to make him look like a DJ. And he would open it up and there would just be a MacBook inside and you would just <laughs> put it up on there and he would open iTunes and you'd hit play. And it was like, it, they pay you for this? Why are you, you know? <laughs> I, I'm sure we'll get feedback that, you know, DJing is really about the selection of the songs. It's not a performance. It, it is a performance, but not that kind of performance. Anyway. Um, but, you know, in 2001, kids weren't rolling up with their uh, with their power books in a giant pelican case to play music at the local club. <laughs> like, yeah. That was just not how it worked. So um, I don't know how much use this feature got, except that at this point, iTunes did not have gapless playback. I know. That was a later feature. So if you had, and, and this was a common thing to do on CDs at the time, was on an album, for whatever reason, the way that they would cut the tracks would not really be at the edge of the songs so that you would get, like, a guitar chord would hit at the end of a song and then the, the you know, like, reverb and echo of that fading chord would also be, like, the first second of the next song. And if you're listening to the album even all the way through, forget just playing the single song and getting that chopped off, But even if you were listening to the album all the way through, you would get the chord and then a little stutter and then the rest of the chord. Um, but you could turn on the crossfader and put it down to its lowest setting, like 0.1 seconds of crossfade to try to like mitigate that, but it never worked out right.
1: Yeah. I remember, I remember trying this and really wanting it to work because there was a period where I bought a lot of, uh, live in concert albums so of course you have like the crowd applause, uh, fading between songs. And it was very jarring to have that split second of silence between that, you know, it made you think it, it did something skip. No. Cause it's, you know, it's a digital file.
0: And we were used to skips on physical media at the time, but then you're like, why is my
1: computer skipping? Exactly. Uh, and yeah, like Ed said, gapless playback finally became a feature in a later version of iTunes. And uh, we'll get to that in our next episode of our show. But I remember like hooting, uh, audibly hooting when I read the release notes and thought that that was a thing because it bugged me from the release of iTunes all the way until it was finally fixed. I remember that very clearly.
0: So iTunes 2, although it had these audio enhancements, it also added support for the iPod. Um, It also would be the last version that would actually run on OS 9. So there were point releases of iTunes 2 that ran on OS 9. And I think this goes back to what you said a little bit ago, Brian, about iTunes 1.1 was maybe what they were aiming for. And what they were really aiming for was just an OS 10 app. Um, That there was really only a year, year and a half of iTunes existing on the classic Mac. But they knew that if they launched it as an OS X only feature, it wouldn't get the buy-in. At least that's my interpretation.
1: I think that's right. The final thing to say about iTunes 2 is what was its icon? I'm, I'm really going to hammer on this. Uh, it kept the same CD background, um, but instead of having three separate eighth notes, it now had the very familiar to everyone today, two eighth notes barred together over the CD and this time they were uh, dark blue, aqua e dark blue.
0: Right. And this totally fit in with the OS X theme, the, the original aqua of the day.
1: Right. The very heavy glass bubbly aesthetic. All right. We're going to zoom on now to iTunes 3.0, which was maybe nine months or so later, July of 2002 at Macworld Expo, New York.
0: Right. And I think that, you know, at this point, the iPod has been out for a little bit less than a year, three quarters of a year, and this whole music ecosystem is starting to come together. And there is questions of what you can do even more with your music uh, to execute this rip, mix, burn, or now rip, mix, and then put it on your iPod strategy. Uh, it's not as catchy, but that was how things were playing out. So big features in iTunes 3. Um, in terms of interface, we're still looking the same at this point. Still brush metal and aqua. But the big feature in iTunes 3 was smart playlists and a big focus on song metadata.
1: One of the big pieces of song metadata is the ability to rate each song uh, from zero to five stars,
0: including half stars. If you turn it on in the secret preferences. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I remember that.
0: I, I have a lot of half star ratings in my library. Um, because when I did my big song rating project a few years ago, I turned that on cause I wanted that fine grain quality. But I then realized that when you play those songs on iOS, it does not show the half stars. And so it's sort of hard to tell, what you're actually looking at. And then if you want to change that rating, you say, hey, you know, I rated this song four stars, but really it, it's a nine out of 10. I want to make it four and a half stars. And you're on your phone, you're out of luck. There's no way to to make that change. So you could put it up to five or you could, you know, leave it at four. Those are your only options. But at this point, the five stars was a uh, a big deal that you could have this personal information besides just sort of the objective information of artist track name length play count those sorts of things
1: it also introduced sound check the ability to to like keep everything at a consistent volume as you're listening to it so maybe like one poorly encoded loud garbage noise won't blow out your (laughs) headphones by surprise (laughs) um and i i think i used this for a while but uh Actually, maybe ironically, like Ed said, I found this to be a little bit of a battery drain and I wasn't getting a whole lot of uh, benefit out of it. So I, I don't think I've touched this maybe since it was released.
0: It could also lead to those jarring transitions between, sa- between songs. Because if you were listening to songs on shuffle, then great, it sort of evened them all out so you didn't get surprise loud or surprise quiet. But if you were listening to an album straight through and track three is louder than track four, all of a sudden, despite being in sort of the same, same feel or even having that bleed over from one track to the other, you get a bump up or bump down in volume. But really, smart playlists were the big thing that lasted here. I mean, I rely on smart playlists, and anyone today who's using iTunes Match, uh, if, if you have any prayer of wrangling your library, you've got to be using some pretty sophisticated smart playlists. Um, I'm trying to think of what some of the first smart playlists that I used were, um, maybe only a, a couple of years after this release of iTunes three, um, I would have one where one of the features of smart playlists is not only that you can look for a certain criterion, but you can combine them with the Boolean logic of either and and or, and you can nest those. Um, and also... A feature that I think was there from the beginning was the ability to limit to a certain length or a certain number of tracks. And so I think in the Ritmix burn strategy this was very useful because you could limit a smart playlist to the length of a CD and then you didn't have to guess uh, as to whether you were going to make it onto that CD that you wanted to burn and put in your car for the road trip. And they also had that checkbox in the smart playlist window of live update so if you say limit to what was it you know, 74 minutes for a cd and then you get some songs that it selects for you and you say oh but i don't like that one hit delete and it would bring in another one um to fill back up to that same time and i didn't use that so much for like burning cds to take in the car because I was poor and never had a CD player in the car. I relied on the the iPod and the tape adapter. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that I used it for was uh when I was living by myself in college, I liked to have music on as I went to sleep. And so what I would do, it was a bit finicky and sometimes didn't work to set like a sleep timer on your Mac. And then you would, you know, just put iTunes on Shuffle And you would put on your sleep timer and then, I don't know, it would pick up the mouse or something and, you know, it would think that it was active again and then it would play music all night. (laughs) But what I did was I set up a smart playlist that selected from, you know, a range of things I might want to listen to when I was going to sleep, or maybe even it was the whole library. But I said limit it to 20 minutes and then it would pop up four or five songs. I would just go, no, no, not tonight. No, no, delete, 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 delete until I had five songs I actually wanted to listen to. You know, 20 minutes max of music that I wanted to listen to, hit play, and jumped in bed.
1: My most frequently used smart playlist uh, at the time that I was really heavy into iTunes was a combination of, like, music that has been added to my library in the last 30 days or so with a play count under five, So it was like, what is stuff that i like definitely added with means to listen to, but haven't.
0: I still have a smart playlist. It's called new stuff. Yeah. A lot of my smart playlists end in the word stuff. Stuff? (laughs) I have, um, let's see, I have new stuff, good stuff, bad stuff, better stuff. (laughs) (laughs) These all mean things to me. Yeah. Oh, totally.
1: And, um, I, I talked about this in our previous episode about music players, but when the iPod shuffle came along, uh, and I got the like half a gig model, the entry level model, I would use the autofill out of these smart playlists, and it's just like Ed said, like basically in the same way that you would to prepare something for the car, you know, like I can set a cap on how much uh space it needs to fill up, and I can fill it with all my criteria, yeah, it was great,
0: yeah, and I have a bunch of other things here. I'm just looking at my iTunes library now. um I have a whole folder full of smart playlists now that I just call library org. For organization and it's all these things that you might want to know about songs often things that need to be fixed so um, one the first one is has the word single in the title Oh, nice um because i don't want that there yeah um you know and sometimes that is even how like a song that you purchase from itunes or purchase from amazon you get it and it says the name of the song single Uh, which is, which is stupid. Like I have here, what do I have here? Um, the naked and famous punching in a dream album, punching in a dream radio single. Like that needs to be fixed. (laughs) Like that just needs to be cleaned up. And I have another one. A lot of them start with no. So no album art, no album rating, no genre, no track number, no year. Um, those are the things where your metadata This was the focus of iTunes 2 besides the iPod was get your metadata in order. We're still working on it today. What is the way that this is the sort of feedback loop of smart playlists? Not only can you exploit the metadata that you have, but you can surface the metadata that you don't have so that you have the full system of getting your music to and from where you want it.
1: I've never thought about using it about what's missing. That's really smart. I'm going to do that. I bet I have a lot that's missing metadata.
0: And then there are a few of them there that are actually sort of, you know, uh, artist-specific or that sort of thing. Like, I have a playlist called Hush Fives, which is one of my favorite bands, the Hush Sound. And it's just all of the songs of theirs that are rated five stars. Very simple example of a smart playlist. Something that they would have demoed for, you know, what is a smart playlist? How does this work? Something like that. This artist, this rating, Done. Um, it gets more complicated from there. And, of course, now I've got a whole bunch of these that have the little crossed-out cloud icon on them. Oh, yep. Because it says, you are trying to make an iCloud playlist from songs that aren't in an iCloud playlist, but you couldn't know that because it's a smart playlist. Oh, drives me nuts. Uh
1: One of the final features that version 3 added was the support for uh, audiobooks from Audible. They actually in the thing that we read, uh, that we put in the show notes, um, I think it put, it wasn't just, uh, audio books, but it was audio programming. So you could, I guess like people in before podcasts were generally a thing, people were publishing like short talk radio segments, uh, or stuff through audible as a, as a listening platform. And so iTunes three had full audible integration.
0: And those kinds of programs, I think, reached sort of the level of popularity that those iMovies shared to your friends and family <laughs> did compared to YouTube today versus uh podcasts today and of course, no one had even no one had even considered the word "podcast" in July two thousand and two because the iPod had only been out for nine months Now I've probably gotten that wrong, and the first podcast it was probably before that but <laughs> um, but you know, fledgling technology. And uh, that is the notion of a podcast, the term podcast, the support for podcasts comes much later. I I should
1: point out the last thing to say about iTunes 3 is its icon because it changed again. It was the same shape, the CD and the barred eighth notes, except the eighth notes went from the dark blue of iTunes 2 to a kind of medium purple. I, I I bring this up only because it was funny to me how it ch- the icon needed to change in mostly just the color, almost every version.
0: Yeah, it's an odd sort of choice to differentiate it that way. One more interesting thing about iTunes 3, it'll be the last thing we talk about here today, is that it was the stepping stone to iLife. So it was bundled into the first release of iLife in January 2003, iLife being announced that year at the Macworld San Francisco Expo again.
1: The first release of iLife had iTunes 3, of course, and iPhoto, iMovie, and iDVD. GarageBand would come much later.
0: And all of those other apps like iWeb. (laughs) Oh, that's right. iWeb. One of the few apps that couldn't be renamed just by rem- dropping the i. They couldn't just call it web.app that would be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I, w- I was going to say iSync but that was different. That was like a system level thing.
0: It was a system utility. It did exist at that time. Um that was before I had an iPod and I was syncing up my Palm 5. Yeah, so at this point there were enough iApps and iTunes I don't know, leading the way, maybe. It was hard to say whether it was leading the way or just at least an equal class citizen in the first iLife bundle. And it's interesting, though, because that was a paid bundle, right? Right. That's what I was going to say. So they were, they were putting it in with these other applications so that you could see the way that they were supposed to interoperate, the way that they were supposed to create this age of the digital lifestyle. That was the whole point of what was going on here. But of course, you could get iTunes for free, but you couldn't get the other iApps, the other iLife apps for free. But it was still a tentpole of this software strategy.
1: Yeah. And like Ed said, um, it was a crucial part of the way everything worked together. Because iTunes was, as it had been from the beginning, kind of that one window uh, place where all your music files were. It was your music library. And iPhoto... Apple hoped would be your uh, photo library. And the other two, iDVD and iMovie, would kind of draw on those so you could, without needing to have iPhoto open, um, iMovie could have access to your photo library if you used iPhoto and your music library if you used iTunes to have maybe some music under a slideshow of photos in the middle of your family movie. It all worked together.
0: Yeah, that's the reason that these applications were so closely linked together.
1: Um, So we're going to call it for this episode of our show here, because the next version of iTunes 4.0 is a really, really big one, and it gets even bigger from there.
0: Yeah, so what was so huge about iTunes 4? Well, things that we're going to get to are the introduction of the AAC format and the biggest thing of all, the introduction of the iTunes Store.
1: And, of course, future versions of iTunes had to handle things like managing uh t v shows and video content you get off of the the store um eventual device management.
0: It's when iTunes starts to become the beast at this point, you know iTunes versions one through three was really two things it had you know we were saying if you can if you can narrow down play the darn music <laughs> into one feature, you know manage and play the music. It was two things. It was an MP3 player in the same vein as the MP3 playing software that we had before, where you had a collection of MP3s, you wanted it to be your music on your Mac, and it added this new paradigm of managing things in a library. That was the MP3 player. That was the sort of heart of SoundJam, its predecessor. So it was an MP3 player, and it was the only iPod syncing app. It was the thing you needed if you had an iPod. And it was the thing that you were lacking if you bought an early iPod and had a Windows PC. Because there was, you know, this was OS 9 only to begin with, and then very quickly became OS 10 only and stayed that way for a while. But those were the things that it was designed for and that it was really good at and excelled at in these early versions. So. Like we said, next episode, we're going to start piling on big new features and see what kind of success and trouble that gets iTunes into.
1: If you'd like to see the show notes for this episode, just head to our website, simplebeep.com, or if you're listening to this far off in the future, simplebeep.com slash episodes. You can also leave us uh, some feedback at the forum on our website, or if you'd like to do it in a shortened version, you can... Hit us up on Twitter. We're at simple underscore beep.
0: Yep, and if you want to contact us individually on Twitter, I'm e Cormany, e c o r m a n y,
1: and I'm at Bisuto, b s u t o.
0: Thanks again to Cassidy and Green for <laughs> distributing SoundJam MP and also creating Conflict Catcher, which did not sponsor this episode because those things were very important to us. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back for more iTunes goodness next time. See you then.